Hello and welcome to a black bag episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your Cinemechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Today we'll be reviewing part 3 of our Body Swap Trilogy with 1997's Face Off. We'll jump into 5 point inspection with Cheat Codes, Science, Impressions, Lord of the Rings Syndrome, and Tone It Down. But before we do, let's check in on the shop. Um, and, and investors of Hollywood Chop Shop, in closing, no, 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 keep it, keep it simple. La la ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your support. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I'm, I'm Brad Mosher, I'm, I'm Brad Mosher, I'm, I'm Brad Mosher. <laughs> Whoa, uh. Everything all right in here, amigo? Uh, and what's with all the fucking pigeons? Uh, anyway, we, we need to head over to the fundraiser event soon. You, you good? That's the, that's just it. I, I hate getting up on stage in these in these ridiculous monkey suits, trying to convince people to give us money. Hey, hey, hey. You never forget, you are Brett Mosher. You'll, you'll kill it like you always do, but, but don't worry. I've got a few ideas for the after party that will make sure that people are in the giving spirit. So thank you for all of your tremendous support. Now, enough from me. If you head through those double doors, I, I believe my co-owner, Travis, he, he has a few surprises. Gotta hand it to you, Amiga. The, the carousel was a, was a nice touch. Lots of happy kids out there. Oh yeah, that's right. Happy kids equals happy parents equals big donations. Oh, oh God, that, that, that guy's got a gun. Did, did you hire security for this? I mean, of course I did, but I, what guy? I, I don't see anyone. Are you serious? The guy with the dirty stash and the giant sniper rifle. He's like 15 feet from the carousel. Oh, my bad. I was, I was looking further, further away. Security! Security, right there. Grab that man. <laughs> oh, God. Thank God they got him before he got a shot off. Yeah, but we're definitely not getting any donations now. Nothing like a sniper scared of dampened spirits. Oh, no. Wait, wait, wait. I still have one more trick left up my sleeve. Let's, let's head over to the marina. I rented a couple speedboats to take the clients out on. Speedboats? Forget it. This is getting out of control. Let, let's just go discuss face-off instead. The FBI's top terrorist hunter can finally rest after apprehending the man who killed his son, but the bittersweet victory is interrupted when the authorities discover a bomb had already been planted somewhere in the city. Now to thwart his nemesis' final scheme, the agent must literally swap faces with his tormentor and gain the trust of his partner in crime. While undercover, the bomber awakens and assumes the identity of the FBI agent, leading the two on a collision course as each other. Alrighty, Travis, before we get into five-point inspection, you know I want to know your quick diagnostic of 1997's Face Off. 
Um, I distinctly remember as a kid, uh, this was in the middle of the Nicolas Cage action assaults. Um, now this is a little bonus time capsule for everybody at home, but over the span of 385 days, Nicolas Cage was able to release into the theater The Rock which was June 7, 1996, Con Air almost a year to the day later, June 6, 97, and literally in the same month as Con Air released Face Off. Uh, I will say, as an avid Cage fan of the era, this movie was always third place amongst those three movies. I was curious on if I would feel the same way after reviewing it and watching it with a critical eye. This is still my third favorite of those three. Um, there's a lot I love about this movie. There is a lot I absolutely hate and just cannot believe that <laughs> even in 1997, some of the decision making around this movie was just just batshit insane. Um, uh yes i'm i'm gonna go ahead and say i put this movie lovingly lovingly at the same level as over the top in terms of logic okay and in terms of just enjoying a batshit crazy ride because this movie is insane from almost start to finish <laughs> and i don't i can't tell if they were self-aware or not because this movie and we'll get into it with five point you know we will takes an abnormal amount of time to explain the science of converting someone's face and body to another person but ignores anything else even remotely logical for the rest of the movie there is unlimited ammunition is going off i don't understand the prison or decision making whatsoever i don't understand the time frame that this movie takes place because i'm pretty sure it's over a week and i don't understand how they there's not enough time in a day if no one fell asleep to cram as much shit that happens in this movie in the time frame that i assume it takes place over like it is just in an insane when we talk about a set piece to a set piece that's what this movie feels like but at the same time still has breadcrumbs that they pay off in almost every scene i'm like it is a it is an enigma of a movie to me. Well, I, I think part of that is, I, I don't know if it's changed since then, but when John Blue was directing this movie, he did not speak English. And <laughs> apparently the thing with the, the, the early John Woo American movies, um, I'm thinking of Broken Arrow, I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking of Mission Impossible 2. It was kind of Marvel before Marvel where he would dream up these incredible action scenes. And and to be frank, I use the word incredible kind of tongue in cheek here. <laughs> but then it was the job of the scriptwriters to basically write everything around John Woo's action. And clearly, if he's not speaking English, I don't know what kind of direction he's giving on set. But yeah, it definitely feels like, hey, we got to cram in a speedboat chase here. So we're just going to have the church be across the street well, from the ocean. Arguably, I, I would say cinema's greatest speedboat chase. Only because I don't know if I could name another speedboat chase. <laughs> Aside from maybe there might be a James Bond movie, I think, that has a good speedboat chase in it. Um, uh, one of the, there's a James I won't Bond say movie good. that has, has a speedboat chase in it. Yes. Say, I, should, I should take it has a speedboat chase in it. Um, but yeah, at a certain point, like I guess in 97, he's like, you know, people have done planes. We've done cars and motorcycles. But, you know, I've never seen a boat chase before. 
Well, Brett, I did a little research and I figured out why the speedboat chase appears here, but I'll I'll save that for a five point. Okay. All right. So let's let's just dive right into some five point here. So uh, cheat codes is just about the off the wall bonkers logic of this movie, um, and more so about the fact that I feel how so much of this movie has an influence on what today's video games are because the entire movie plays out like how you would script a, a, a video game from start to finish. Just it's an action piece. There's no real logic. Again, at a certain point, I can't imagine how many bullets each of these guns has. Like, And for them to reload, it is just to give the audience pause. Because it's not because they actually need to reload the guns, because they have infinite ammo. It's insane. No, it's definitely the Grand Theft Auto logic, where I play that game, and I... On my person, I have seven assault rifles, a dozen pistols, <laughs> four shotguns, plastic explosives, and a grenade launcher. And I guess I'm just carrying around that in a duffel bag. Now, yes, most of the characters in this movie only have one or perhaps two golden guns. But yeah, they Ooh. must just have ammo clips just taped to their entire body with a fanny pack on and a backpack on because, yeah, they're, they're, they have to reload but there are never a shortage of bullets. Well, and I even forgot to bring up in, in my opening thoughts of it, this movie starts where most movies end. Yeah. This movie this movie starts with the good guy catching the bag. Oh, is this is this one of your... Lord of the Rings syndrome. Because this... Okay. Every action scene in this movie could be the end of another action. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like the movie. The movie ends where most movies begin, and he catches the bad guy. And then it's like now we have to take the story beyond that. What happens after he catches his nemesis? And that's where the movie actually begins. And even all I can think of is in the opening sequence, how many times Castor Troy unholsters his guns. I'm like, I never see him holster his guns, but there's 20 scenes of him pulling his guns out of this. And I'll tell you. Badass holsters, all right? Caster Troy has some fucking swag, all right? No one is going to deny that. I just don't understand how often he he, <laughs> he pulls those guns out. Like, you never see him put them back, but he's just constantly pulling his guns out. Looks badass as hell, though. That and all of the jumping. They love a good jump shot. Like uh, Them jumping sideways through something as they're firing, as the classic super cop. <laughs> it's just insane. Yeah, it, this maybe Brett, I didn't realize it, but this might have been the origin of when we would play Halo back in the day and we would go with just a pistol and that was quote unquote super cop mode. I don't know if it was face off, but it was definitely John Woo inspired. Oh, absolutely, especially Halo 3 when you could dual wield two pistols. That's when it was definitely super cop mode. But beyond just the the lack of logic and like this movie. Oh, yes, go. Real quick, yes. we're talking about lack of logic, just staying on the airport scene. Archer finds out that Caster Troy's flying out of here and he just has an FBI agent available at the airport to put undercover on the plane, which then that of in itself seems like a stretch. But then you call this person in to play a flight attendant and you kind of just leave her hanging out to dry. If you were going to try to take down the plane by force, why do we need somebody undercover on board? Yeah, why didn't she just detain the, the pilots, right? <laughs> Don't even let them take off. 
yeah, it was it was incredible to me. Like, what was the job pitch? Like, hey, we need you to get on this plane and play flight attendant on a plane that we're actively going to try to prevent from taking off on the runway. To your point, Brett, just detain the pilots before walking out to the plane. <laughs> I also love the FBI Humvee. I've never, I mean, I'm sure it's a thing, but I just love Archer has the FBI Humvee. The helicopter can fly as fast as the jet that's taking off is also no, uh, another classic thing. Or, or, or Caster Troy's logic that the plane is going to take off while he has the door open. <laughs> So that he could shoot out the side of it. It's like, what is going on in this movie? Uh, yeah, I I can go into a long list of things that that don't make the 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 attention to and maybe we'll just I I this is gonna be one of those episodes, people, where we have our five points and uh, it's just gonna go all over the place because this is one of those movies where there's just so much to talk about. I don't know if we can contain it. Uh, very neatly in all of the five points because there's so much batshit crazy and them removing someone's face and putting on another is honestly the least crazy thing that happens in this movie <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I love the black bag operation in that somehow Caster Troy, time this is where we're going to get back into the time frame, okay? Caster Troy wakes up, realizes that his face has been removed and is assumes it must be on Archer because he sees Archer's face there. Just His, his face his, just floating in a jar of water. Just floating in a jar. He calls his henchmen, who then go to the doctor's house, get the doctor, apply Archer's face to him, all right? They go and find all of his friends, his buddies, who are the only other people who know about the black bag, black bag operation he burns them all alive and then shows up at the prison the next morning i don't know how all of that can happen in one night i don't understand it like the timeline of events i want santa claus doesn't move that fucking fast delivering presents to every child on christmas all right it's insane to me what they cram into this movie i mean speaking of crammed into Let's not forget the fact that later in the movie, Caster Troy as Sean Archer has sexual relations with Sean Archer's wife multiple times, which tells me, and I mean, the, the movie makes it explicit. Again, John Travolta and Nicolas Cage are built very differently. So it's yes. not just about swapping a face. They go to the trouble of showing, hey, we're going to fix your hairline. We're going to install body hair. But most importantly, again, like you said, Brett, this was a surgical procedure procedure done overnight that allows caster troy as sean archer to infiltrate this prison and basically rub it in his enemy's face but how did they know how to mold his dick after sean archer's because <laughs> clearly his wife does not notice so what is the template that you're you're doing that surgery on yeah yeah, they, they take the point to tell us they're going to, which I love that, we'll remove your love handles, but then I guess we're going to put them back. I'm like, no, leave them off. Like, that's the exact surgery I would love to have right now. You're telling me you could remove my love handles and I don't have to do anything about it? I'd love a hard reset on my flobby body right now, all right? So, I'm sorry, I don't, <laughs> the, the only thing he cares about them putting back is his, his scar, which at the end, I don't, I don't need it anymore. But what? <laughs> it's so, We'll get to the data. Again, this movie is, oh my God, it's so crazy. So trying to say somewhat in chronological order so I don't lose everything. I thought the same thing when he has sexual relations with his wife. Essentially, she's raped in this movie. Yes. We don't really talk about that. She is, 
I don't even know because you know law doesn't really pertain to you know impersonating someone else, but she is she's raped by Castor Troy. We don't really dive into that whatsoever. The implied, not implied, but Castor Troy looking up and down Archer's teenage daughter also incredibly uncomfortable and did not need to be in the movie at all. Like it's that's one of those scenes that like maybe something was lost in translation because John Woo couldn't speak English, but like that didn't need to be there. That was just awkward and weird. And there was plenty of other things that Castro Troy did terribly that I didn't need to establish that as well, that he's just a real freaking creeper. Yeah, like, you know, being surprised that his plan to shoot a father while on a moving carousel with other children ended in a child dying. Um, Another weird thing to me, like I I was weirded out by that scene where he looks the daughter up and down, but I'm like, Hey, they're trying to make Castor Troy look like an ultimate piece of shit. Okay. That's fine. I get it. But then there's this weird, like stretch of the movie where it feels like he's being a better father to Jamie than Sean Archer was. And I'm like, wait, why yeah why are we trying to make caster like is he he's a good dad now and as soon as he pulls out the knife like i'm like okay this is gonna be a good payoff but it's one of those i'm like why are we establishing like he's overbearing and over like super aggressive but he's still he's taking care of you know archer's daughter where even archer couldn't take care of her i'm like to your point super weird why is that something we need to dive into (laughs) right right now his relationship with with his daughter um well and and you want to talk about family relations what's up with uh gina gershon and her brother having like this weird incest angle dude every every time something came up yeah i was constantly in the movie thinking like wait are they are they together or are they brother and sister? And every time I'm like, every time something would happen, I'm like, I think they're brother and sister. And then like, they'd have a kiss or something like, oh no, no, they they have to be a couple. Like this has to be like a weird couple. I'm like, oh no, she keeps referring to him as her brother. I'm like, what is going, like, we get to your, why are we doing a weird incest thing with the two of them? Like, it's it was weirder than Luke and Leia kissing when you find out they're brother and sister. <laughs> well, and apparently just... Caster does not know that that kid is his but knows that Gina Gershon has a kid. Sasha is her character. So does Mm. he just assume that this child is a product of incest the whole time? Incest, or I guess maybe he assumes Sasha gets around. I I have no idea. I also like that Sasha in that scene is like, I didn't want you to know because I didn't want people to come after him. But at some point she's like, well, I thought you were dead. So I guess now I'm going to tell you that it's your son because that's going to change who you are being a giant piece of shit. And I know we're um, we're bouncing around all over the place, but as as batshit movie as batshit crazy as this movie is, Brett, they cut out quite a bit that would have made it even more ludicrous. And I'll kind of sprinkle these things in. But since we're talking about Sasha and her brother right now, the brother uh, Nick Cassavetes is the actor. He's got a shaved head. Apparently, John Woo did not sign off on him shaving his head. He just showed up to set that way. The interesting thing mm-hmm. is, though, that Cassavetes and Gina Gershon agreed that Sasha would also have a shaved head. And John Woo was like, <laughs> absolutely not. That would be incredibly distracting for absolutely no reason. And that was scrapped. But can you imagine this movie? But Castor Troy's love interest has a shaved head to match her brother's. Yeah, it only adds more weirdness to that relationship. 
if, if they both have shaved heads. <laughs> um, more things that I just, it made me laugh when it happens is after uh, Archer, Caster Troy as Archer diffuses the bomb, the president's calling. He wants to talk to you. It's like, what the fuck do you mean? president's calling why is the president you tell the president he can wait and then, then later where i i talk about i don't understand the timeline of this movie when they do the archer your your time magazine's man of the year i'm like why how has that already come out he's the time magazine's man of the year what is the timeline of this movie christ i forgot about the times man of the year thing because, yeah, I mean, that that's the only part of the movie, like, from a plan perspective that made sense. Like, I could see Caster Troy as a, a career criminal, and now you've given him the keys to the FBI. I could see why he would want to kind of take over. Um, but ultimately, you still look like Sean Archer. So, like, you can try to help your colleagues as much as possible, but the world still thinks you're an FBI agent. I <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the caster motivations are, are very weird, and the timeline makes it even well, I love when Caster murders hit Archer's boss, and he's like, can you please call? It appears he's had a heart attack. And I'm like, there's no more compassion that your boss, your mentor has had a heart attack? <laughs> he's had a heart attack. <laughs> I, could, I could believe that part, as ridiculous as it was, but then there's a point in the movie where it's like in the apartment shootout, and... Like an FBI agent's like, hey, why are you crying for that piece of shit, Pollux Troy? And he just fucking kills him. I'm like, there are a lot of people around. What are the what's Not the ballistic, there aren't. What are the ballistics tests gonna say about this? <laughs> I I also love the wife taking the blood sample while he's sleeping next to her. Like, hey, why do you have a blood pin? All like, what other medical supplies do you just have sitting around your house? Like, there's no reason for you to have that. And then, you know, the, the weird, like, inside stories that only her husband would know are somehow not enough that she actually has to go and test the blood. Very strange to me that that has to happen. Oh, uh, while we're on <laughs> we the We haven't subject- even gotten to Waterfall yet. <laughs> oh, Christ. Well, while we're on the subject of, of Eve Archer, played by Joan Allen, another ridiculous element of what this movie could have been, the studio thought Joan Allen was too old. They wanted a younger and sexier actress. So they basically were like, hey, could we have the mom be a stepmom instead so that we can cast a hot young actress? And I'm like, so you completely want to neuter the dead son storyline because <laughs> what, what the fuck does the step? I mean, the stepmom would care, but she's going to care infinitely less than the kid's biological father. So, again, as crazy as this movie is, I'm glad they didn't go all the way. Uh, yeah. I mean, speaking of going all the way, what did you think of the somehow repurposed oil rig with magnetic boot floor for the prison that made no sense to me whatsoever like it's not even one of these like in a marvel movie if you're like these are superhumans metahumans sure like these are just people they're just people that you've put and the to the point where they have to make the guards evil like when i you're such a bad guard so that when archer is watching them get murdered by all of the criminals you don't feel as bad for like well i guess archer realizes they're kind of bad guys or something like that because it's like all that blood's on your hand. You staged the escape, which allowed all of these guards to be murdered. I mean, goddamn the the prison 
I'm sure you through your research, Brett, you found that this movie, as written originally, was supposed to take place in the future. Hence, how we can explain the ridiculous surgical procedure that's the root of this movie. But I guess the prison was, you know, left over from that draft with the, the Mario the booth. surgery was left over from that draft, Travis. I don't understand why we didn't just make it like at one point. We're like, no, no, no. I think audiences won't respond to the hard sci-fi here. We'll tone it back and just have sci-fi elements that aren't necessarily in the trailer. <laughs> and I mean, look, there's a lot to dissect with the prison scene. I mean. It, it's one large magnet, but yet they're using like radio walkie talkies. Those wouldn't work. Just FYI, uh, not to go to the Neil deGrasse Tyson score. But uh, also when it's revealed that this prison is on an oil rig, I'm like, spatially, this does not make sense because you've got this massive prison facility and then. Archer gets to the roof and it's an oil rig. And then I'm thinking, why do you need the magnetic boots when it seems to be 25 <laughs> miles offshore? How, how does he make that swim? I, Jesus Christ, this prison scene. <laughs> Just, yeah. Insane. Insane. The, the, the pieces that got, that got left in this movie. Um, <laughs> I can briefly touch on waterfall. All of the, I don't understand what, what the waterfall was supposed to be. It wasn't even something that just like John Travolta did. At a certain point, his daughter does it to Adam, which we're going to have to talk about Adam and how that whole thing plays out. <laughs> um, but yeah, the whole waterfall facing, uh, I don't know about you um, with your significant other or not, Travis, but I know that that's actually a thing in my house uh, of us doing waterfall to each other, even before we had both seen this movie, because we knew of it and it's how ridiculous it is just to walk up and just go waterfall over somebody's face. Uh, I mean, look at me blankly about, like you've when, never done it before. I mean, when you're talking about waterfalling on somebody's face, Brett, it just adds a different <laughs> meaning to me. The PG waterfall, PG waterfall. Uh, another quick note I'll give on what the studio wanted. Uh, while Archer's in Caster Troy's body, they wanted him to sleep with Sasha. Which I'm like, wow, morally speaking, it'd be hard to kind of still like Archer at the end of this movie when he brings home a new kid. Like, hey, can we adopt him? I also fucked his mom, but, you know, it was with Caster Troy's dick, not mine. Yeah, in his face, right? In his face. And uh, a mold of his body, so... Well, even at that point, like they they teeter between making cast or Archer a good cop or a bad cop that gets results because I feel like they want him to be the good cop. But he talks about like the uh, oh, what's what's legal and not legal, and all that right after that. I think he like he winds up like beating the hell out of somebody like a witness or a pull. He pulls a gun on a witness is I think what happens. I'm like, well, that's not really legal. You know, if we're really going down the whole, you know, archers by the books that they're trying to do. Uh, I also enjoy, and this was the first time I noticed this, but at the beginning of the movie, before they catch Caster Troy, John Travolta's got like a little bit of a five o'clock shadow, which is supposed to represent like, you know, he's just, he's a man obsessed. He's been chasing Caster Troy ever since his son died. And then after they catch him, they just have him. I say clean shaven as if he was really rocking a beard, but it looked like it was literally a five o'clock shadow. Like he had shaved that morning and then he had 
that's what was left <laughs> over. So I, I just love the characterization of making him look unhinged, which is just a, a couple speckles of facial hair. <laughs> so I want to talk about Adam and that real quick, because we're still in the logic train here. But then as we talk about unhinged, we have to talk about John Travolta as Nicolas Cage and Nicolas Cage as Tron Travolta, uh, because boy, oh boy. Um, but the whole thing with Adam where I just love he's tore up because his son has died. And this whole thing is he's been chasing Castor Troy. And then at the end of the movie, he adopts his son's murderer's son and somehow that erases the memory of Michael. <laughs> I've got this boy, Adam. He'll be our new Michael. Yeah. At a certain point, I'm like, when do you actually just rename him Michael. Yeah, th there's a much darker movie to this because my probably favorite scene of the movie is when he is on whatever drugs he's on in, in Caster's apartment and he sees Caster's son and just has the fucking freak. The amount of therapy that, that Michael is going to require as he's just, Archer's just grabbing him and hugging him and just mauling him. <laughs> and I love Gina Gershon's performance. It's just like, what, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're scaring him. <laughs> And then, yeah, the, the, the through line to that is we're just going to adopt you. Like, you know, that that psycho that was like mauling you and calling you his dead son's name. Now you're going to live with him. So it's funny in the scene you're talking about right after Caster or Archer as Caster Troy is freaking out, calling Adam Michael, Michael, Michael. <laughs> Adam picks up his toy ray gun and uh, Caster Troy's golden deagle with the same effort. <laughs> Which, I mean, in in the scope of this movie, it's just a very minor nitpick. <laughs> it is, but it made me laugh when it happened. He's hold, he's dual-wielding them like, that gun would be so freaking heavy for that kid. He would not be holding it like that. But my what I love at the end, when, the, he, <laughs> when Archer reveals that he's brought Adam with him to his family, A, he hasn't talked to his wife at all about adopting a kid, but secondly... His wife doesn't meet him at the hospital after this, you know, intrusive surgery that he has to go through. She waits at the house for him to come up. And when he does show up, he has a kid wait on the porch by himself while he hugs his family. And then he's like, he walks back and goes, hey, come here. Now I'm going to reveal that you're out here. <laughs> what is going on? Again, the level of therapy that that kid is going to need because... Listen, Brett, when I have friends and relatives who have pets pass away, I'm always in my head like, well, hey, do you, you think you're going to get a replacement pet? But I'm always very cognizant of not not bringing that up. Like if, if the person brings it to me like, hey, I'm thinking mm -hmm. about getting a new cat or a new dog. I'm always very supportive of that. But I'm never going to be the person to encourage someone to do that. And that's with a pet. You're bringing home <laughs> yeah. a human child who has already been through God knows what. And you're like, hey. I didn't run it by my family. I'm sure they'll say yes. But just in case they don't, just wait outside here so I can just put you back in the car and take you to foster care if if for some reason my wife is a ballbuster. I think this. he's just going to shut him back on the porch. I don't think he's going to take him anywhere. Like, he just got home from surgery. Like he's, uh, You're going to need to find somewhere else to hang out. Uh, but, I mean, you, Brett, you're acting like it's an invasive surgery. Again, I don't know what the timeline on this movie is, but just a few days after... That massive surgery, 
uh, he escapes from prison and, and swims 27 miles to the shore. So it can't be that invasive of the surgery. I just, I also love, I love the scene uh, you're talking about, uh, you know, Archer as Caster Troy uh, when he's on the drugs. I want to take his face off. His face off. It's like, yes, we get it. That's the name of the movie. We, it's, uh, we don't have to keep going down this road. We're spending a lot of time explaining the name of the movie. Um, also, I was saying, Caster Troy and getting his tongue sucked. Is that weird? Was it just they brought that up a couple times in the in the movie? I'm not going to kink shame anybody, Brett. I just at the time in 97, I think it's just weird how often they wanted to bring up the fact that he got his tongue sucked. It wasn't like he just did it on the airplane. It comes up later. Again, you just was it? You just like when I suck your tongue or something. I'm like, wow, we're just really gonna go with the whole tongue sucking thing. We're really gonna push this hard. I mean, do you know Caster Troy's favorite fruit, Brett? Um, I feel like there's a pun here that I'm missing. What is it? A uh, peach. You get to eat a peach for hours. Oh yeah. We're talking about things it. that randomly get brought up over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I have to mention this scene because literally, Brett, it was my favorite of the movie. And I I could give you a thousand guesses. You wouldn't guess it, but I bet you'll remember it when I point it out because it was the only moment that felt 100% real. Like, you could export this scene and put it into an actual, like, cop drama. I remember as a kid, I could not understand why Archer was so broken up when Tito got killed. Do you remember Tito? He's one of the people mm-hmm. that he burned in the office. When Tito is transporting Archer to the helicopter, this is going to be like the last moment where anybody knows you're Sean Archer. And I, I would bet anything this was a Nick Cage ad lib. But Archer, as Caster Troy, starts rubbing his face on like the concrete of the building. And mm-hmm. Tito's like, what's wrong? And he's like, my face itches. And Tito grabs him by the head and just kind of massages his face because Archer's in cuffs and can't scratch it himself. That told me so much about their partnership in just a five second scene that it made when Tito died, I was actually bummed out. But ultimately, that was probably just a weird Nick Cage improv. Like my face itches. I had surgery. My face should itch. But the way that scene was done, I thought that was beautiful. I don't know if you remember it or if it stood out at, to you at all. Oh, yeah, it definitely did. Because is that right after that is when he gives him his wedding ring, right? Tells him, yes. Tells him to hold on to it. Yeah. And then, of course, um, we have the callback yeah. when we realize that he knows Tito's dead because Caster's got the ring. Hmm. Yeah, that's the sad part is that's the last time you see Tito alive because the next one is him being drenched in gasoline. So, uh, yeah, no. Fantastic scene. I don't disagree at all. It was all. so out of place, though. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Get this movie. To, to your point where this is, you know, John Woo had the action scenes that he wanted. When Archer is escaping the hideout and climbs up the ladder and Pollux chases after him only for Archer as Caster Troy to swing back and kick him into the glass ceiling. What was his motive to begin? Was he climbing up there for the Tarzan swing? Because nothing else was up there for him to do. 
again, a, a, a minor nitpick in, in the scale of this movie. <laughs> well, yeah, and the, the logic of the police, they can see that there is a woman and child in the room with who they believe is Caster Troy, and they just open fire. Like It's like, there is no collateral damage concern whatsoever in this movie. It's, well, we got Caster Troy, so it doesn't really matter if a woman and child are dead now. Yeah, and, you know, I get that, you know, Caster Troy, now in the body of Archer, is is leading the group. So, like, he might give them reckless instruction, but I'm like, there is so much... This is the FBI. There would be some level of oversight where they're like, what's going on with Archer? He's he's awfully aggressive, even by his standards. <laughs> um, uh, real well, quick, sorry. Even to that point... <laughs> no, no, go ahead. It sounds like you got something. I was like... The wife at the end, she goes, I'm going to tell you the craziest story. And the next scene is all of Archer's partners believing. It's, no, we understand. Your wife called and told us. We totally get that there was some weird experimental surgery that no one's ever heard of it. You guys somehow, you didn't switch bodies. They just modified your body to look like his. Yeah, she's just like, look at this blood <laughs> test I've got. You know, that's all you mm-hmm. need. Uh, yeah. Um, they even changed his dick. I couldn't even tell the difference. <laughs> the the speedboat thing. This is the last thing I'll say about it. It it felt super out of place for me. Like it felt like again, the Lord of the Rings ending. The church shootout to me should have been the end of this movie. Why we have to then mm-hmm. go into the speedboat chase only for Caster Troy to be killed outside of the speedboat made no sense. Do you know why the speedboat chase is in there, Brett? Uh, I would assume some kind of sponsorship or marketing ploy. So John Woo, prior to Broken Arrow, I think it might have been his first American movie, was Hard Target with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Okay. It takes place in New Orleans on the bayou. And in the script that Woo agreed to direct, the climax was a speedboat chase, you know, through the swamps of Louisiana. And I'm like, as a part of that movie, it would make sense. Everything's on the water. Like on airboats or something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. If you watch that movie, you will, you'll understand. They didn't have the budget to do that. So it was cut. A new ending, a lower budget ending was, was inserted. And apparently John Woo was just like, you know what? I've always been enamored with that speedboat chase from Hard Target. I finally got the budget to do it. Let's do it. And to me, Brett, as a filmmaker, anytime you can shoehorn in the ending of a different movie just because you thought it was cool, <laughs> I mean, you have to do it. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got the budget now. So, listen, when he does his sizzle reel, he's going to be able to put in a boat chase that he wasn't able to do prior to Face Off. I, I can't argue with that, but it, it is pretty clear narratively when the movie has nothing else to give in terms of any sort of character development. It's after that church shootout with the transition so, to speedboat chairs. So this is the one moment in the movie where I wanted to give it more credit than I know it's worth. Because when Archer kills Caster Troy with the harpoon, I'm like, I wonder if this is kind of like a... a, a uh, what is that? What's Moby the word Dick? I'm looking for? Literary. Yeah, and Moby Dick. Literary reference here where like, it's his Moby Dick and he's finally getting his whale, but I'm like... No, because I'm watching Face Off, so there's no way that's what they're trying to do here. He just had a harpoon. <laughs> yeah, and now you know, like, hey, well, they were on boats. Uh, we, we've done a lot of gunplay. What's a what's a weapon associated with boats? A harpoon. 
<laughs> I even, I even, at the end, it appears that Caster Troy in Archer's body has determined that he is lost, but he is going to make sure that Archer is tormented by having to live in Caster's body. Even though at any given point, I feel like he could take over any other person's face at that point, right? Because they have the technology. Um, but <laughs> Caster Troy's logic is he's going to cut his face, cut Archer's face off, but doesn't bother to go like across to actually damage it. It's just like going around, basically perforating exactly where they would need to go around to remove his face. I'm like, I don't understand the logic behind this. I'm like, if that's really your ploy, you just start scratching your face to where there's no way to, you know, rebuild it. Yeah, again, it a minor nitpick in this movie. But yeah, I did, I did think it was weird. It's like he's just basically starting the surgery early on the beach to, to help Archer mm -hmm. out. So the last thing is a little, a little, uh, a little story of mine uh, before I want to talk about impressions. So I can remember listening to my mom describe parts of this movie when I was a kid because she went and saw it in theaters. I obviously did not. But there was a point where I, I overheard her describing the scene in which Caster Troy is smoking the cigarette and his face has been removed. As a kid, and up until... Because I'd actually... I've only seen bits and pieces of Face Off until I watched this full full time. This is the first time I had watched it full through. I'd never seen that scene. Up until this time, I don't know why. I always pictured that scene where it was basically like... If you were to take someone's face... Almost like the... What is it? Like the, the magnetic doodle on a person's face. Where like... It was healed. It was all skin. He just didn't have any eyes. And he just had basically a nose and a mouth. Was how I always pictured that scene of him without a face. I don't know why that made more sense to me. Even up until watching the movie. As opposed to him just having an exposed muscle. But I always associated that with like... I don't know if anybody's ever seen the comic uh, character the question it's a dc character but basically that's what it is it's just a blank face that doesn't have any facial it's a mask that makes it look like he doesn't have any facial features like a mouth or a nose or eyes or anything i'm like that's how i always pictured that scene was that he just didn't have a face not that there was any exposed tissue though um and he was smoking a cigarette I mean, honestly, I don't know which one's creepier, seeing the actual version of the movie. If it had been someone with just literally no face or somebody with their face removed. But just thought it was a fun, fun little thing is <laughs> to a little look at the behind the curtain of my brain and how it works. I mean, with just about any other movie, Brad, I'd be like, that's a fucking idiotic thought, even for a child. I mean, how's he not going to have any eyes, Brett? That's not realistic. How is he going to get the but in this movie? You could have done either one, and they would have made an equal amount of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, it makes Team America World Police way funnier. Uh, with their whole, when, uh, what is it, Gary goes through the transmorphication. Like, it makes it way funnier, because I'm like, I fully understand the reference that they're making. They are just really making fun of Face Off with that, that whole scene. <laughs> yeah, where they essentially... <laughs> ultimately just end up gluing pubic hair to his face <laughs> yes <laughs> um so i know i don't know if we talked about tone it down at all i think we've hit cheat code science and lord of the Rings syndrome but impressions i definitely i would love to have known how 
John Travolta and Nick Cage determined how they were going to play these characters. Because I can't tell if it's Nick Cage doing his best John Travolta doing a Nick Cage impression, or like, is it a matter of Nick Cage just went batshit crazy and then John Travolta got to watch the that, you know, how he was acting, that performance, and was like, okay, I now have to channel that. But both of them do a pretty good job of being insane in this movie. Obviously, Nick Cage does a much... I think Nick Cage does a better Joker crazy, whereas John Travolta is more of a creepy, uh, almost Hannibal Lecter, like, creepy crazy. What were your thoughts? Uh, well, through research, I did find out that, I guess, a couple weeks before filming, Cage and Travolta met up and kind of... Uh, decided when they were playing themselves what particular um you know body language mannerisms you know verbal tics that they could exaggerate stuff that they knew that they did but they could dial it up to 10 that way when the other guy has to play him it makes it easier um i couldn't point to like a specific thing for either one of them but yes you can tell that there was a lot of care put into pre-production on how they would portray those two roles. Because man, that's, it was fun seeing Travolta play so unhinged because I don't feel like he gets to play that much. I think Nick Cage has fully leaned into the absurd. And I mean that as a compliment, but to see Travolta be able to cut loose, I thought I thought it's more of a Travolta movie than it is a, than it is a Cage movie, as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. <laughs> so, I saw the worst, the worst travolta impression that nick cage did was the whole you know you know the scar this one that i had right here i don't need it anymore i was just like oh my god it's so over the the sad part is when he did i'm like oh i could see this is it's just an over the top travolta impression is really what it is <laughs> yeah i also love the line that the the writers gave him about you know this ridiculous chin uh, apparently Travolta was kind of low-key offended by that and was like, hey, are you, are you making fun of me? And they had to be like, no, 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 just two completely different faces. They were totally making fun of you, John. Yeah, you're the good-looking one. <laughs> um, but my last thing, because I, I mentioned it, tone it down partially was the stuff I thought they should have toned down, but then the stuff that, thank God, they actually did tone down. My one other bit of research, and you may have seen it on IMDb, they were in an early draft. Now, I don't know if this was when Schwarzenegger and Stallone were going to play it or when it was Michael Douglas, who is an executive producer. I don't know if you know this, but they were going to have Archer, once he becomes Troy, Caster Troy, to meet Caster Troy's mother and kind of stay in hiding with her for a bit. Did you read any of that? No. They had two casting choices for Caster Troy's mom. One of them was Elizabeth Taylor, which... Okay, she was an iconic, classic actress and would have been in 97. Do you know who the second actor that they wanted to potentially play Caster Troy's mom? Middle Streep. I'm not making this up, Brett. They wanted Jack Nicholson in drag. What? Again, I don't know what... The script had been floating around for a while. I don't know what year this was, where that was the plan, but that was the plan at one point. I like the idea that that wouldn't have been distracting, but 
both of the siblings having shaved heads would have been like no that's the, there's the line where he draws that yeah but jack nicholson in drag that's that's not where it'd be like what is actually happening in this fucking movie yeah i regret that they didn't go with that because that just would have been the cherry on top of this insane <laughs> ice cream sundae <laughs> oh times man of the year <laughs> Just so much. Maybe it was so one much. of those things where it was two weeks left before voting and they couldn't come up with anybody. And they're like, hey, that, that LAPD or not LAPD, that FBI Los Angeles guy disarmed the bomb. Maybe we could give it to him. <laughs> I do love the opening scene, how over the top Caster Troy is as the priest. When he's dancing on, like, it is so over the top. Why go to the trouble of getting in the disguise if you're just going to act that way, though? I mean, he's planted the bomb. It doesn't matter anymore, right? If he gets kicked out, who cares? Yeah, the, the bomb that'll go off eight and a half months afterwards. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't... <laughs> I don't think we have much else to talk about before we get into some of our other segments. It is just what what a a crazy, crazy, crazy movie. Yeah, I'm I'm good to move on to some of our other categories if you want. Alrighty, alrighty. So with that, I think we'll we'll move into Blue Book. So Travis, the sticker price of this here flick was $80 million. What do you think it brought home U.S. and Canada? $101 million. Not bad, not bad. $112 million. What do you think it brought home worldwide? It's John Woo. So I have to assume the international market will reflect that. I'll say I'll say 200 even. We're going to round it up here to 200 and 46 million dollars. So uh definitely a success. I can see why. I mean, this is before you have a bunch of Marvel movies. This this was the Marvel movies at the time, so they, they're going to... And that is the sad part, is that Marvel has essentially taken over the action genre. Like, we would never get this movie again today. <laughs> uh, you say that, sir, but did you see what was announced earlier this week? No way. Yeah, Adam Wingard is attached to a sequel for this movie. And I had wondered when you picked this, I was like, did Brett know something in the news that I, I didn't quite know yet? But yes, technically, this is in pre-production for a sequel. Are they going to try and imply that Caster Troy is not... Or is it... I mean, They want to bring feel like Nick this is Cage a movie. back. That's all I know. How the fuck do you bring Nick Cage back? It's just funny that you literally were like, this movie wouldn't get made today, but Brett, maybe it is getting made today. Hmm... We'll see, we'll see. Um, one quick note. Do you know what movie opened the week after this? In 97? What is it? Men in Black. 
Oh, wow. So the fact that this movie was as successful as it was with that movie coming the next week to kind of cannibalize it, pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, I definitely watch Men in Black. Men in Black, far superior movie to this. But uh, yeah, (laughs) somehow a movie about secret agents hunting down aliens is less crazy than Face Off. (laughs) All righty. So are you, you, you ready to do some tag and title? Let's do some tag and title. Alrighty, so Travis, I am going to give you three taglines. One tagline is an official tagline for this movie. One tagline is a tagline for a movie I found adjacent. And one tagline is one that I created myself. What I need you to do is tell me which of these three taglines is an official tagline for 1997's Face Off. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Alrighty. A face only the other could love. Be all that someone else can be. In order to catch him, he must become him. That's the tagline for this movie. I will never forget that tagline. You did a good job with the other two. You said a face only the other could love. Mm -hmm. And then what was the middle? Be all that someone else can be. I think that you made that one up. A face only the other could love. I have to... hmm. I know this is wrong, but I'm going to say this is like, that's Beauty and the Beast or something. Final, final guesses here. Yeah, final guesses. You got the primary. You got the main objective. All right. In order to catch him, he must become him is, in fact, the official tagline for this movie. Be all that someone else can be. Oh, that's not in the army now with Polly Shore, is it? 1999's. Being John Malkovich. Ah, well done. And a face only the other could love is your, or is from me, yours truly. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, words I don't know here. Red. Well done. Um, for for so, a minute, Brad, I thought after the past couple of weeks, I thought I had got you down where I could I could see you coming from a mile away, but you, you came <laughs> with a little bit of thunder this week, so good job. Um. Also, one that I thought was too ridiculous to even propose. I thought "stop hitting yourself" would be a funny <laughs> tagline for this one, um, but I was like, "You'll definitely know that one was me." <laughs> I'm glad you still mentioned it though, because that's good. Um, so, some of the other tagline, official taglines for this movie were: "To destroy your enemy, you must find him, face him, and then become him." It's like looking in a mirror, only not. And only one will survive. I think only one will survive is as pretty generic as you can get in terms of a movie like this. So. Also, anytime now that you've said it, it looks. What would you say? It looks like him, but not. Look, it's like looking in a mirror, but not. I can only yeah, hear it's like it looking as in a mirror, only Cage not. Cage delivers it in this movie. <laughs> it's like looking in a mirror, but not. <laughs> All righty. Well, I think that brings us to our... Nope, time capsule. That brings us to time capsules, but it does. Woo, boy. 
Uh, I already gave you the bonus earlier. Bonus. But this is a quick one. Um, Dietrich Hassler, which was Sasha's brother, was played by Nick Cassavetes. Do you know who Nick Cassavetes is, Brett? I don't, but he did look familiar. Um, He's done a lot of acting. He's got 49 acting credits, but I bet you would know him best as a director, Brett. Um, Ooh. He directed movies that include John Q, starring Denzel Washington. Okay. A little romantic film called The Notebook. What? Yep. Uh, Alpha Dog and My Sister's Keeper. Um, fun note, he's also the son of John Cassavetes, a famous actor-director in his own right. And he is the son of actress Gina Rollins whom he directed in the notebook. She was the older version of Rachel McAdams. So it's weird to think of uh, Dietrich in this movie. You know, he's kind of a thug, shaved head. You know, hey, hey, Archer, hey, Archer, how's your dead son doing? That guy directed the notebook. <laughs> huh. I mean, definitely one of the best romantic comedies ever created. So kudos to him. Yep. So. Very uh, very weird career for that guy, but I'm a I'm a Cassavetes fan. Very cool. Who wrote the the Notebook? Nicholas Sparks. Ah, oh, that's it. Yep. Uh, very cool. All right. Yeah, that was a solid solid time capsule. Thank you, sir. Alrighty, Travis. That brings us to our final segment. Our real final segment chop shop are you ready for some choppy chop uh it seems like this week neither of us are but we'll do it As Travis mentioned, uh, I was cursed this week. Every time I sat down to do this, something tragic. Well, not tragic. Let's not be, let's not be Nicolas Cage here um, and over the top. But uh, it, something came up that distracted me in my household. So I have pieces of a miniseries. I'm probably going to need some help getting it over the finish line. Um, Travis, you had family friendly, I believe. Yes, unfortunately, that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so apparently, in you know, a little pre-production here, you had mentioned that you had a pretty firm idea of where you wanted to go with this, and the only genre that would not fit with that was family-friendly. And what do you know? The Wheel of Destiny decided that, as fate would have it, you were going to get family-friendly. So would you like to go first this week, or would you like me to get through my half-assed miniseries? Mine's a little bit longer. You said yours is a little bit shorter. So, yeah, I guess make the determination based on that. Do you want to lead with longer or lead with shorter? I'm going to lead with mine because I feel like it's going to leave a bad taste in people's mouth. So I want I was going to make a, like a, a Sean put... Archer penis joke and then you start talking <laughs> about a bad taste in the mouth. So I just I have mm-hmm. Yeah, let's let's start with yours. <laughs> uh, so with miniseries, my main focus was that I wanted to do a little more background on Archer and Troy because it seemed like they had some history prior to when he tried to murder Archer and managed to kill his son instead. Um, and then 
uh, more on the family dynamics because I felt like that was kind of overlooked. Uh, but yeah, let's we'll just get into it. Uh, episode one. Um, ultimately, this just kind of goes into maybe you know as Archer's been hunting Troy, Troy realizes that or you know Caster Troy realizes that he's he's honing in on him, decides he's going to take him out. Episode ends with you know Archer's son being killed on the carousel. So, again, just to give some backstory, a little bit of history to the two characters, understand where we are with that before we get the tragic ending of the episode. Um, episode two, years gone by. Archer's marriage is on the rocks. His career might be successful, but it also seems like it's coming to an end because of his obsession with Caster Troy. As we, you know, you mentioned they tried to do it at a five o'clock shadow that would imply his obsession didn't translate well but we really did want to hone in on that with this one so troy has a slew of bombings um and successful payoffs around the globe which attracts both the fbi and interpol with the combined intel we archer gets the lead that he needs to finally snag troy um so episode three ready for takeoff archer the fbi and interpol close in on troy with the episode climaxing with the gun battle at the airport Troy is assumed dead, and Archer feels like he can finally move on in life. As the episode ends, we find out that there is a bomb that has been planted, and that Troy had one last scheme before getting caught. Episode 4, The Bomb. The FBI try to locate the bomb, but after several days, they have no leads. They attempt to reason with Castor's brother, Pollux, but to no avail. Archer is approached about an experimental surgery that would allow him the edge he needs to get the answers he wants. The episode ends with the reveal that Caster Troy is actually still alive and in a coma. Episode 5. The Surgery. Archer agrees to the surgery um, and is converted into Caster Troy. Archer enters the prison and begins to pry Pollux for the location of the bomb. While this happens, Caster awakens and finds his face missing and calls his henchmen to help him become Archer. Uh... It ends with Archer getting the, the location of the bomb and essentially Caster showing up at the prison as he's trying to escape. Uh, episode 6, Trading Faces. Caster Troy infiltrates the Archer household and begins to... Um, and begins. Caster and Archer begin to dive into each other's lives and we see what makes the two men click and what they've been sacrificing... or how what they've been sacrific sacrificing to be who they are. The men are actually more similar than they think, both of them giving up most of their relationships in pursuits of something else. Caster Troy is basically kind of fame and fortune. Like, he's he's definitely a peacock. He's a showboat. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Archer has completely buried himself in his work, which we'll find out he did even prior to his son dying. His son dying just kind of allowed him an easier excuse to do so. In episode 7... Caster attacks his old hideout in hopes of killing Archer. He learns about Adam um, and has a bit of a change of heart. Now Caster realizes that he actually is a father as well. And it starts to weigh a little bit on him. Like, what are his responsibilities? Um, and then that's pretty much where I fell off. So I wanted to somehow end this where both of them got badly burned somehow. And at the end, the audience wouldn't know who actually survived. If it was Caster or if it was Archer and they assumed the life of Archer, I couldn't figure out, even a, in face-off, a way to, this face-off universe, a way to make that make any sense, especially with the blood type, but that's, that's where I was hoping to get by the end of this, is basically the audience wouldn't know who actually, 
because again, we've now planted the idea that Castor wants to be a responsible father, them ad adopting Adam. We don't know. Is it Castor adopting essentially his son and wants to be a dad, or did Archer actually survive? I, I know you, you know, due to circumstances, you didn't get to put as, as much time into it as you wanted to, and I appreciate that, but let me ask you, Brett, does it feel good? Does it, does it feel good? Oh, to do a cliffhanger? To do a little yeah. cliffhanger action? Huh? <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. I, I Again, I know you only had the skeleton, but I, I mean this as the highest compliment, Brett. That's exactly where I would have gone. Like, who, who is really who at the end of the day? What what separates these two men from each other other than the fact that one is a criminal and one is a, a law enforcement agent? So I, I, I love that. Um we're not going to let a silly thing like blood type get in the way of that ending. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. So that was my skeleton ish uh, synopsis of a mini series of face off. Now I'd love to hear whatever you have, because I'm not, I'm not convinced we're getting a family friendly flick. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll, I'll try to, at the end of it, tell you how it could be considered family friendly. But yeah, I uh, I originally started going down the road of like Oscar bait slash miniseries because, you know, left to my own druthers, I'm going to give you a miniseries cliffhanger. But um, no real cliffhanger here uh, because I wrote the ending after I realized that I was not doing a miniseries. So <laughs> um, mine is going to be set in the near future because again that's i think one of the mistakes that we can agree to face off made just have it set in the future the, the problems that it causes will resolve enough problems that it's worth doing you know? yeah the suspension of disbelief is there if you're like oh this is in the future technology exists so um i did make some radical changes though um, Sean Archer and Castor Troy are childhood best friends who dreamt of being FBI special agents since childhood. Both graduated the uh, police academy at the top of their classes, but Castor got caught up in a corruption scandal and was fired from the force. Now, Castor may have been fired due to involvement with his brother Pollux, but we'll see. Years later, Sean Archer is the head of corporate security for a chain of movie theaters called Cinematown. Using that position to hire Caster as the GM of one of its small town locations. So Archer's always felt a little bad that that Caster didn't get to follow his dreams. So he's like, hey, I've I've tr transitioned my police experience into corporate. So I'll bring you in. I'll throw you a ball. The private sector, man. That's where the money's at. Exactly. So in his position as GM uh, of the. The, the local cinema town, Castor hires his younger brother Pollux as a floor manager. Although Castor has gone on the straight and narrow since being booted from the police academy, he kind of turns a blind eye to Pollux's casual skimming of the theater. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar to you, Brett. Mm, no, not at all. Um, the theater chain has decided to upgrade all of their digital projectors to some fancy new type. Again, this is the near future, so digital projection has been replaced by whatever the new hotness is. And the manufacturer just happens to be located a few hundred miles from the theater that Caster is the GM of, and his theater will act as the beta test for the new equipment. 
Pollux is going to get wind of the new projectors and their storage location and successfully boost them uh, with the help of some of the employees he supervises. So again, the hierarchy here is Caster's the GM hired by Archer, who is head of corporate security. But Caster hires Pollux underneath him as just a regular supervisor of, of the, the movie theater. Um, Caster's at the theater after close, uh, entering end of week data into the office computer when he receives a call from Pollux, cryptically, cryptically bragging about the projector heist. A flustered and confused Caster questions his brother, telling him he only can protect him you know, from the nickel and dime jobs, but Pollux tells him to relax until they can meet in person. The next morning, Caster's on the way to the theater when he gets a call from Archer. Archer is furious, relaying the fact that the projector warehouse was broken into last night and all 19 projectors scheduled to be installed at the theater have been stolen. Archer asks Caster who else knew about the warehouse, and a flustered Caster starts babbling incoherently with the words Academy and Pollux being heard. Archer yells into his phone for Caster to snap out of it, but a flustered Caster, in the midst of a panic attack, runs a red light and is T-boned, falling into a coma. Mm. After visiting Caster in the hospital, Archer is approached by the CEO of Cinematown, uh, who I'm just going to have be played by Jack Palance. Uh, he tells Archer <laughs> that the stolen projectors will likely be sold for parts by the end of the week and heavily implies a terrorist element stating that the proceeds from the sale will lead to nothing good for the average American. The CEO pitches the idea of taking Pollux's face off and poses Pollux in hopes of finding out the locations of the projectors. The CEO informs Caster that if they can find the projectors, he won't press charges against Pollux. Caster agrees. Uh, we cut to after the surgery where the CEO is visiting a recovering caster. Archer accompanies the CEO up to the recovery room. When the CEO enters, he sees the spitting image of Pollux Troy sitting up in his bed eating jello. In the bed next to him is a heavily bandaged body, the face covered in bloody gauze, which I don't think we talked about it. Why did they leave Caster Troy alive after they got his face? Just pull the plug. No idea. Just pull the plug. He's a yeah. vegetable. I, I thought it was going to be one of those they put Archer's face on him to keep the face alive, but no, they the jar of liquid was fine. So yeah, there was no reason to keep Archer, or sorry, Caster alive whatsoever. Yeah, you're, I never even thought about your thing. Just keeping the tissue alive by attaching it, that would have made at least a little bit of sense, but I digress. Um, yeah, so the CEO sees the, the face covered in the bloody gauze. Uh, Jack Palin speaks, I'll be damned. I'd never even be able to tell the difference. Uncanny, isn't it? Caster slash Pollock says. Uh, yada, yada, yada. We're going to get to the third act again. It hasn't been family friendly at all yet. Um, we're going to have the creepy scene of Pollock's, you know, the, the body that's wrapped in bandages sitting up at the hospital to realize that he's alive as well. Pollux will seek vengeance against the CEO for convincing his brother to betray him. Uh, Pollux, in Caster's body, will break into the CEO's mansion, holding him hostage. He's got him duct taped to an office chair. Um, Caster and God damn it, this is so difficult to do uh, without visuals. Caster, in Pollux's body, will show up trying to convince his brother that this is only going to make things worse. 
then Archer arrives, creating a massive Mexican standoff. Pollux will put his gun down and be arrested by Archer. Thank God. Come on, Caster. You're my guy. Untie me. Caster moved towards the CEO, and just then Archer gets a call in his cell. Yeah, you guys are all prepped over there? Good. Yeah, we've got him. Yeah, we'll transport the patients. Archer hangs up the phone and then proceeds to uncuff Caster's body. Much to the confusion of the CEO. So the big reveal is going to be that Archer... Caster and Pollux have all been in cahoots the whole time, and there was never a body switch. Pollux has been pretending to be Caster the whole time. And with Archer's security clearance, Pollux will switch faces with the CEO and begin running Cinema Town, with Archer remaining the head of corporate security. Caster will quickly climb the corporate ladder to a board position, Meanwhile, the corrupt CEO will live the rest of his life in prison as Pollux as credits roll. You know, and it's all about <laughs> Pollux and Castor, you know, building a family with Archer and striking back at corporate greed. Yeah, I mean, definitely the rekindling of the brothers. And their longtime friend of ours. You were going to think they were at see. odds the whole time, but really, it's, mm, it's a family—it's mm. family versus the corporation. Well, because when the big reveal happens, Archer, Caster, and Pollux are going to have to. There's going to be a flashback explaining all of it and how they got back together, and like they've actually been rekindling their their relationship as siblings, and yeah. And in related news, Brett. And listeners, we're workshopping potentially uh, just one chop shop a week so that uh, neither of us kind of throw some shit at the wall and see if it sticks. So here's the other thing. I think that the the CEO on top of all of it should be Archer's stepdad. It has to be one of their stepdads. Yeah, it has to just to bring in the old weird face-off thing. Yeah, well, in the old weird face-off thing, why would why said there need to be a stepfather type thing, stepmom, person in drag? Who knows? I don't know. (laughs) Just the weird shit that makes no sense. Uh, But yeah, that's that's it. I mean, Travis. Uh, I had no idea that where you were going with that one. So kudos to you for for keeping me on the edge of my seat because I had no idea that was going to be the big reveal at the end. So fantastic. Thank you. Well, with that said, I think we've come to the end of our our program here. Final final thoughts of 1997's Face Off. Should people watch it? Should they own it? Is it what's what? Where would do you see it on TNT? You know where they've cut out all the the bad bits. Um, I mentioned it at the top. This was part of Nicolas Cage's run as one of the best action stars in the history of Hollywood. With like I said, The Rock, then Con Air, then this movie. 
like I said, I still think that this one is the bronze medalist of that action trilogy. So if there's stuff you like about this movie or there's stuff that you kind of were intrigued by listening to us and maybe you haven't seen it, I would still say watch the other two first. This movie is incredibly quotable and fun. It just, all of the pieces don't add up to the movie that, that what's the saying? It, it's not the sum of all its parts. That, that's mm-hmm. what this movie is. It, it's got a great action director in John Woo. It's got two great actors in Cage and Travolta. It's got some funny, funny dialogue. And yet it just, it doesn't quite work for me. So I would say watch some clips on YouTube. Enjoy some of the crazy dialogue. If you're going to watch this and fully commit to it, I would say watch the other two, The Rock and Con Air first. And see if you still have an appetite for more Cage in action. If that's the case, give this a go, but it's it's the mildest of recommends, I would say. What about you? I mean, just listening to you, the lies, the distrust. I mean, this is really starting to turn into a real marriage. <laughs> uh, I absolutely think people should watch this movie. Uh, the Travolta, Nicolas Cage impressions of one, I think enough are enough of a reason. It is crazy. Like, you're not going... It's fun to see Marvel, what action movies were before Marvel took over and everything just became a Marvel movie. Because even this, like you could see there being this a Marvel premise where, oh, the good guy and the bad guy switch faces like it wouldn't be nearly as graphic. But you could definitely see something like that happening. It, it would be so toned down and vanilla, whereas despite this movie's flaws, I mean, it has swag from from beginning to end especially in Castor Troy, like his whole character is incredibly fun to, to watch on screen with between the outfits and the, the glasses and the, the dual gold guns. Drinking the Coke say? right before he assassinates the kid. He's got the Coke with the straw. Yeah, it was such a weird shot too. I have no idea why they zoomed on the mustache and the, and the Coke straw. But uh, yeah, it is. I think it's a, an extremely fun ride from beginning to end and for that reason i think it is a movie that is worth watching it is a a great thing to just sit down and be like this is bad i had to watch this in in two parts and i was bummed out when i had to pause it halfway through and resume with the next i could not wait to get back into it the next day it just it, it didn't work out for me that that evening but it is just a fun brainless action movie yeah, it, it, pure insanity. Uh, to me, I, I don't. I would say it's the peak of American John Woo, but he still goes on to make Mission Impossible 2, which I don't think is as crazy as this movie, but when you add the element of Tom Cruise, still pretty insane. But I, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I think you liked it more than me. Um, yeah, hopefully at some point in the Hollywood Chop Shop, we can review Con Air. Uh, and the rock. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, did you think it was interesting as as we're signing off here the uh, the boyfriend that gets his ass kicked? Uh, yeah, Danny Masterson. Uh, you know, uh, early rape. Art imitates yeah, life. Early life rape imitates and, art. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> it was so satisfying to watch him get drug out of that car, though. All that I know uh, about him now. Yeah. But uh, I think that leaves us. Do you have anything else to say before we wrap this one up? Uh, 
I hate to end on bad news, Brett, but I do have a little bad news for you. Mm-hmm. I uh, I torched all the evidence that proves you're you, okay? So, <laughs> wow, looks like you're going to be in here for the next hundred years. The first time through, Brett. Well done. <laughs> that, that might be a first. <laughs> I should drink before these more often. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, now I got to go home and fuck your wife. I mean, make love to. <laughs> this is where you scream die in a high-pitched tone and then choke me, Brett. Die! Do 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 do